Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Speed Technologies, the Ask Noah Show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. It's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalaya. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this evening. Joining me, my co-host, Mr. Steve Ovens. Welcome in, sir. Good evening, Noah. I have been firing on all cylinders. It's been one of those, the last couple of weeks have been uh, just generally good all around. I've been enjoying what I've been doing and uh, I'm looking forward to this particular episode. I think it's very timely for me. Yeah, I'm happy to hear that. I know that there's been times where you've had a bit of a rough time with some of your tech, so I'm glad to hear that things are going well. What Steve is talking about is the impact of gratitude around North America at various points throughout the year, depending on exactly what country you live in, we as a society try to set some time away to express and reflect on being grateful. And Steve, I understand that there are a number of positive impacts to people who view the world as being more grateful. If you if you view your job and your technical talents and your technical resources with a heart of gratitude, like a whole bunch of stuff in life is better for you. Yeah, the Epic Times ran a story. It was either yesterday or today that I read. And essentially, it was covering some of the studies that have been done on the impact of gratitude. And the one that jumped out at me was essentially, they ran the study for, I want to say, six to eight weeks. They split the group in two. And they asked one group to just simply journal things every day that they were grateful for. And read them back the next morning just to themselves or whatever, just to remind themselves of things that they had uh, enjoyed the previous day. And the other the other side was not asked to do any journaling. And they found, even in the short study, significant markers in terms of uh, increased mental health, increased physical health, increased uh, ability to handle cognitive load and stress. Like, the the list goes on and on. Like, it was quite substantial, and it's not the only study in that way. And so... You know, we know that negativity kind of breeds depression and all of the rest of that and and a sour outlook on life. It's just it's interesting how if we take the time to reflect upon things that we are grateful for, how that actually even benefits us. So we thought we'd take a couple of moments just to step through what we're grateful for and why kind of with a tech perspective. So I'll go first and kind of say that for me, as I think about what I'm most grateful for, it is decidedly people and resources. I, I never feel like I'm stuck. And a big part of that is it's the best way I can describe it. It's like your big brother coming to back you up at a street fight. And it depends on what the street fight is and what the challenge is ahead. But I know if it is a if it's if it's a if it's a, a domain controller problem or a Windows error problem, I know the guy that I can reach out to who knows more about Windows and domain controllers than the people at Microsoft who who make them, which is helpful to me because I get in over my head with stuff like that. And one of his close friends, Brandon, has been uh, you know a, a a part of the show in the past and. 
is a great guy inside of the community, knows everything there is to know about databases. And so every time I if I if I get in over my head or I don't understand something, I know that I can reach out. And more than once, we I've had an, a situation where there's been some sort of critical thing and I feel like, you know, my feet are, are close to the fire and I've got that option to get out and, and call a friend. And I, I as I think about what has allowed me to be successful it's largely because of people like that being willing to be generous with their time and their resources uh, to help out. And I, I try to do that myself, but it's, you know, it's the, the whole like all tides rise. And so because we're all willing to help out and all kind of existing, coexisting rather inside of one gigantic community, that I think if I was to pick one thing is what I would be most thankful for. Right under that would be the for-profit companies who pair their customers with developers passion projects so there are a number of companies and i often hear them get torn to shreds on podcasts and inside of blogs and on news sites for being for profit and for charging money for their wares and i have to tell you i'm very thankful for those places the companies that take and and take a customer who say i have a technical need and i'm willing to pay for it and they take the money and they say i'm going to take that money and i'm going to broker a deal between you and an open source software developer so that you can get what you need out of software, but the money is going to further the advancement of open source software. So those for-profit companies, I'm hugely thankful for them. Underneath them, I'm hugely thankful for the developers that work for some of those for-profit companies and absolutely give back and contribute to society that way. But then when they get done, they go home, they eat dinner, they spend a little time with their family and they go right back down to their computer and they start working on their passion project on their free time. And they give that away on their own dime, on their own time, because they're passionate about what they're doing. And so just a thank you to all the developers who make all of these projects that we rely on. And you know something, you said something, Steve, that just kind of struck me. You said that as we get older, that our capacity for gratefulness grows. And I, I resonate with that because like I was, I was sharing a story that I went and did enough landscaping outside the front of my house, moving dirt around to know that like, I'm not cut out to be a landscaper the rest of my life. It's just not for me. So God bless the people that are willing to do those things. And God bless the fact that I can afford to pay somebody to do some of those things because I've done enough of it to know I don't want to ever do that again. But walking through those, walking in those shoes one time gave me a new perspective on how grateful I am that there are people out there that do those things. So I've tried to apply that same lens to software developers. I'm not a software development. You don't want me driving your software, trust me. But I have done enough software development or at least looked over the shoulders of enough software developers to understand the amount of work and the amount of attention to detail that goes into doing some of those things. And I just feel incredibly blessed and, and grateful that I have access to all of all of these tools even without having to be a software developer myself. Yeah, I think I'll piggyback on that because I benefit greatly from the open source community at large, especially when it comes to being able to look at the open code and figure out what's happening. You know, maybe there's a project out there that I don't necessarily use, so I'm not interacting with it, the software itself, but the code is doing something similar or I'm trying to learn how a specific type of mechanism works and having open code out there allows me to go and kind of interrogate what's happening and build my skills from that. Even though I may never interact with the developer themselves, they have benefited me greatly. And I, I, I'm also thankful for that. 
we thought we'd give you a little bit of a look at what it might dig in or, or what it might look like for uh, for some gifts. Now, Steve, I know that in your house, one of the things that you were telling me about is you feel grateful for the hardware you have because you just can't kill it. Yeah, I've been I've been very fortunate. I was just saying to my wife that uh, God has really blessed the hardware in, in this house because, you know, you read all these reviews that are like I, I received a DOA device or died three weeks after it was here or whatever. And, and I was telling Noah today that uh, I have a computer. I pulled a hard drive out of it. I looked at the manufacturing date. It's uh, August 2012. And the only reason I pulled this hard drive out is because I was giving this hardware to somebody else. And I thought maybe I should change the change out the hard drive so it doesn't die on them three weeks after I give it to them. But the hardware just kind of goes and goes at our house. It We burn out hard drives every once in a while because hard drives, as much as we'd like to think they're not, they're, they're consumable devices, I suppose, in, in that regard. So maybe you have a geek in your life. Maybe you are the geek in your life and you've got some family members or some friends that are saying hey you what do i get you for christmas christmas is coming up i want to buy you a christmas present i know you're a geek i know you like tech things what are you looking for so you might just drop this episode and say here are some recommendations for some geeks for a geek our first recommendation is actually a black friday special so we're going to jump on this quick and steve i understand one of these is in route to the Ovens household, it is a 10 gig switch by a brand that, well, neither one of us have ever heard of and know nothing about. Yeah, yeah kind of an iffy choice on my half. It's it's called Moker Link, M-O-K-E-R Link, um, mostly because it's for like $283 for an eight port switch. And I thought, ten well, gig. yeah, 10 gig. That's that's the important part, right? I, I finally reached that critical mass at home where it's like, about half of my computers now between the servers and such have a 10 gig NIC in them, but I don't have a 10 gig switch. So, you know, at the tipping point, I thought I'd give it a shot. I think this is pretty cool. You know, there's a lot of, there's a couple different manufacturers out there that make inexpensive switches, inexpensive 10 gig switches. Uh, This is pretty close to bottom of the barrel. What you're getting is a managed switch with a good enough, presumably web UI, uh, you're getting eight ports that are 10 gig each over copper, not SFP. But if you're looking for like a small little core switch or a home lab switch, or maybe you want to switch to connect like a file server to a virtual host, or you're wanting to do some video editing off of a NAS or something like that. Like this is the kind of tech that is inexpensive enough that you can get your foot through the door and start getting your hands wrapped around some concepts and really do some kind of cool stuff. Now, I think where you need to be a little cautious First, be aware that this is not really a well-known switch, meaning the biggest problem is going to be security updates and, well, updates of any kind in general, is when you when you buy a chip, a switch made of, you know, cheap Chineseium, for lack of a better way to describe that, <laughs> you, you're, 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 you're really at this manufacturer's mercy. And who are they? How long have they been around? How will they be along? Well, nobody really knows those things. But, again, if, you're, if your choices are between not sending your foot through the door because you can't afford to do so and you can get your foot through the door and start putting your hands on some concepts and playing with it, it's not a bad way to go. The second thing I would add is if it's going to be something that isn't necessarily on the internet per se, that is to say it's just passing traffic around, well, you can probably, if you invest, you know, sub $300 in this thing and you get even five years out of it, I think it's money well spent. Yeah, I'm hoping that it ends up working out okay. I 
The other thing that you we should mention is not just the support from updates, but since it's a managed switch, if you don't know how to do a thing, community can be a big, That's big a help one. or hindrance, right? Like I'm planning to use this as a dumb switch, but if I was trying to use this as a core switch, I probably would be thinking twice about it because how do I do this thing? Is it going to be easy? Can I figure it out? Yeah, that's a really good point. You're going to have all, you're going to have all of the Cisco commands splattered all over, you know, all of the support sites and you'll have all of the PFSense people telling you what to click on and your switch is going to be one thing slightly different. So, yeah, I, I don't know. That that's definitely worth considering, but again, I still come back to you like if your choice between getting in the door or not getting in the door, this might be a great way to do it. So, we'll put the 10 gig more Mocha Link switch, Mocker Link switch up link will be available in the show notes of podcast.asknoahshow.com. The second is the Seagate 20 terabyte Exos drive. Now, full disclosure, I have both the Exos and I have the uh, uh, Seagate Pro. I forget their Pro line, but I'll have a link for you in the show notes. And I have my backup server has actually one Exos and one of uh, this this other line of the, the Iron Wolf, the Iron Wolf Pro. I have the Iron Wolf line and the Exos line. I have both of those uh, sitting at, at connected to a single ZFS pool. And that's actually what I'm running on my backup server. And I've been really happy with both drives. I had half the people tell me, don't get the Iron Wolves. They're, they're going to die in you. I had another half of the people tell me, don't get the Exos. They're going to die. So I bought but one of each, both. And I was like, well, let's see which one dies. And here we are sitting three years later, and I haven't had a problem with either of them. So take that. Yeah. Um, the Iron... So the difference between them is the Iron Wolf is specifically geared towards in the firmware and so on and the right endurance for NAS, NAS drives, mm -hmm. right? And the Exos are meant for um, enterprise usage. That also means the Exos is louder than the Iron Wolf, which means that if if you have the, a bunch of Exos stacked beside you, you might need to soundproof that a little bit because it might get a little bit uh, frustrating. One of the things that I have heavily relied on, you know, AltaSpeed Technologies, we deal with hosting and installing drives and upgrading drives for people, but I, we don't have the budget to do an expansive research and development kind of thing. Backblaze is kind enough to publish their hard drive results. And so every quarter they run, they monitor, obviously, all of their drives and they publish all of the specifications. So they'll say, you know, from HGST, we bought these four terabyte drives and currently we have 10,289 of them in production with an average age of 83 uh, months. And so far, the drives have been online for 1,044 days, 981 uh, days up, and we've had a total of four drive failures, which equates to 0.14%. You know, and they'll tell you, like, here is what we've seen. And what's funny about this, and it just makes me giggle, is like, you'll look and you'll say, you know, I got 10,000 of these and 13,000 of those and 15,000 of those and 61 of the Toshiba HDF 180 eight terabyte drives. So that tells me, like, they're trying these things and they're introducing them into production slowly and they have one failure, which equates to a 6.52% because it's such a small test bed. Knowing that ahead of time and being having somebody else walk that road ahead of me has been, again, we'll come back to grateful. It's going to be kind of a theme this hour. So I'm grateful that Backbase publishes and shares all of the data so that I don't have to buy all those drives and find out. And people like Steve and I can just look at the data and say, hmm, this is what I'm buying for my next drive. 
So check out that Seagate 20 terabyte and check out the Backblaze data, both of which we'll have linked for you in the show notes, podcast.asknoahshow.com. Steve, I understand right about now is a great time to be buying some Shelly devices and automate the heck out of your home. Yeah, so one of the things that I'm particularly thankful for a lot is the Home Assistant Project. Uh, and I even subscribe to the Nebucasa, even though I don't even connect my Home Assistant to their online thing or whatever. But related to that, the I've, I've become more and more a fan of the Shelleys. I used to build a bunch of this stuff myself, and I still do. But there's something nice about having the, the nice, neat little package that the Shelleys come in, and they're, they've been fantastic for their warranty. Um, they've replaced several of my devices that were right at the edge or over the line for me, and that's been appreciated. So they're running Black Friday sale. If you're interested in any of the Shelly stuff, I I ordered like 10 or 12 pieces of, of kit from them, various stuff, and it ended up costing me like 90 bucks. So there's some good deals out there if you're looking for them. Yeah, I'll tell you something else. So there is part of it is you don't have to assemble it yourself, which I think is a part of it. I'll tell you the other part of it. I had a, I had a motorcycle and the clutch cable broke on it. And I got home one day and I said to myself, self, you fix things for a living. You run cables for a living. You plug things in from one thing to the other. So what difference does it make if you're sending a TCP or UDP packet across an IP stack from one device to another end, or if you're just pulling on a cable, that should be a walk in the park. I'm going to replace the clutch cable myself. So I started to take apart the motorcycle and take all the plastics off and I take the engine apart and I take the thing and pretty soon I get in and I get the new one and I thread the cable and I get it all put back together and or at least enough to test it and I start the thing up and it doesn't work and I can't get the clutch to engage and I can't get it to disengage and I'm watching YouTube videos and I'm reading service manuals and I'm twisting and I'm learning all, all sorts of new words and it's not working. It's not working, Steve. It's just, it was, it was an absolute disaster. And so eventually I get frustrated and I threw all the plastics into one box and I threw all the little pieces and bits and bobs and screws and other things and some stuff that maybe went to the motorcycle, maybe didn't. I lost track at that point and put out all that in a bag. And I drove the entire thing over to a motorcycle shop and I walked in and I grabbed a hold of my mechanic and I said, I'm in over my head. I thought I could replace this clutch cable and I can't. And he comes back out and he looks at it and he looks at the box and he looks at that and he goes, you know, do you ever have somebody walk into your shop? with uh, you know some computer towers and some switches and some cables and say, well, it worked yesterday. I tried to dig into it. Uh, That's what we're left with. <laughs> and his point was, well, why don't you come pay me to do what I'm good at and you go do what you're good at. And then in that way, I stay in business and fix motorcycles and you can stay in business and go fix computers. But, you know, we all kind of win. And so there's the uh, there's absolutely the aspect of you could do those things yourself. But the other aspect is you're paying and supporting with your wallet other companies that are willing to do that work for you so that you don't have to. And more importantly, so that the next person following in your steps that maybe can't do that um, can walk into a place or go online to a place and just order a thing and it shows up at their doorstep. So I, I don't know. I, I, I think there's I think there's value in, in both of those things. Um, so there was an app that got released and it's called the Nothing Messenger or it's an upstart called Sunbird. And they had the nothing app. Now, now the Sunbird app. We'll get to that in a second. So it launched on Friday, and immediately ARS Technica was skeptical to say the least because they weren't able to answer some basic questions. So the app, if you listen to their marketing spiel, the idea was that it was they found a way to hack Apple's iMessage protocol so that they could give Android users blue bubbles. Quick lesson for you on iOS stuff if you're not following along here. 
iOS to iOS isn't actually going over the SMS network. It's going over Apple's proprietary uh, iMessage network. And as part of that, it will identify to you another iOS user by giving you a little blue check mark. Whereas if there's coming through, if it's falling back to SMS, then you get a little green check mark. So this company claimed to have been able to properly implement or hack Apple's iMessages protocol so that you get the little blue bubbles and you can do that from Android. Great. Sounds good. So the app launched on Friday. And the internet started poking around at it, and one blog after one site after review after another came up, and it didn't last 24 hours, guys, and they, they pulled the app from the App Store. Now they've re-uploaded it under an app called Sunbird, and so there's this ARS Technic article, which we'll have a link for you in the show notes, that talks about what an absolute dumpster fire this app and the launch has been. Here's what my takeaway was from it. So first of all, if you really care about end-to-end -end encrypted messaging, if you want to send something securely from one person to another, you need to use a messaging service that is auditable, that has code that you can see, that you understand the security behind it, and that you understand where those keys are being stored, and most importantly, how to destroy them and or manage them. Because if you're not able to do those things, you can have end-to-end -end encrypted if you can compromise the end device or the end user's device, or even if you have end-to-end -end encrypted, but the keys are backed up somewhere outside of your control with or without your knowledge, it's not going to do you a whole lot of good. So the other side of that is you might not be looking for end-to-end -end encrypted message. I know plenty of people, myself included, I'm in this box. I don't want iMessage from the standpoint that I want to secure me to talk to people. If I wanted to do that, I'd use Signal or I, I, I would use Off the Record or I would use Element. There's plenty of options for me to send secure messages without using some proprietary option that I can't audit the code. My goal is different. My goal is to attract the least common denominator. I want the ability to just send messages to people's phone. I don't care if they're encrypted or not because I don't care if the cut you can Plaster the content on Twitter if you want to, or X. It doesn't matter to me. I just need to get the information to that person. We're not having anything of the, of the sort of a, of a private conversation. In that case, I think some of this is maybe less relevant. If the goal is just to get the message traffic from one place to the other, and you don't care if it trans transverses the open internet because that your, your goal isn't to be private and or to be secure, I think that's a different use case. And so I would first ask you to distinguish between those two. What are you looking for? Then on that lowest common denominator thing, you can subdivide a little bit. So for example, the beeper bridge, I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up beeper because they were doing this before I'd even heard of nothing. They offered the ability for you to just sign in through their app and sign into your iOS account. Now, does that give them the credentials? Are you trusting them to be signed in on a device on your behalf inside their data center? I presume you are because they have to have an Apple device in order to be able to relay the iMessage. Does that mean that a potential exists, a security potential exists for somebody to jump in the middle? Absolutely. You've placed them in the middle. So again, we've got to reevaluate what is our end goal here? Are we trying to just facilitate communications or are we trying to establish a secure communication you know, link between you and this other place? If you're going for the lowest common denominator though, you look for something still that you can audit because it tells you what they're doing on the back end. And oh, by the way, you don't have to sign into their infrastructure. They publish the bridges openly. You can host them yourself and run them. But for me, I just chose to set up a completely dedicated 
iMessage account that I created for free on Apple.com, tied it to my Beeper account, and now I can send messages to every iPhone on Earth through Matrix. That's a benefit to me. Is it secure? No. But then again, I don't expect it to be. Now, Steve, I know that your answer is probably going to be something along the lines of, uh, it's a phone, and I don't even have an iPhone, so, uh. But thoughts on secure messaging and or the iMessage hack that wasn't? I mean... I would definitely take security over not even for all of the other people out there in the world mm. if if we can get there just because it doesn't necessarily impact off the surface off for myself personally I do as a technologist recognize that it's probably good for the world if we actually did these better as for the nothing app what a just a a joke of a way <laughs> to uh, do things not not to mention the fact that how petty are we as a species? And this is a terrible downer on a week that we're giving thanks. But like, how terrible are we as a species that we care what the color of the bubble is enough that we're going to be like, yeah, wow. here, have my login information. The, well, the color of the bubble is representative of is it coming through SMS or do you look like another iOS user on the other side? I think yes, that's what's I understand that. But that's that's still pretty pedantic. Like you, you're getting down to the. It's no longer can I not communicate with each other. It's like I'm not communicating with you properly to have the right status. <laughs> Fair really? Simon Quigley. He is the release manager for Lubuntu and a guest this hour on the Ask Noah Show. Simon, welcome into the program. Hey, good to be here. Thanks for making the time, dude. So uh, I want to start by asking a little bit about the upcoming release of 2404. I understand that you and the entire team at Lubuntu have been putting a ton of time and a ton of work into the up and coming release. And there's a couple new features. So what is special about 2404? So we're really putting a lot of work into the system installer. So unlike other Ubuntu flavors and the main Ubuntu flavor, I guess you would say, um, we use Calamares, which is a Qt-based um, desktop installer that is used by, um, at the very least, Manjaro and Debian um, as their graphical installer. Um, so it uses um, a modular-based uh, config format on the back end, and it's, it's um, what we've been using for a couple of releases now, a couple of long-term support releases. So um, we are really working on adding a couple of new features to that installer, um, one of them being the uh, the customized menu. So users are able to, alongside um, the regular Ubuntu installer, choose between a minimal install and a full install. Um, this allows the user to either have like a bare bones install um, where they can just install an application on top of it or even use it on a very lightweight machine um, or the full install that has the full suite of lightweight applications we ship. Um, in addition to those options, though, we are shipping something that the main Ubuntu installer does not have. Um, we are shipping four applications in there. Um, they're all four of them are opt-in. Um, and you were able to select them um, to be installed in your Lubuntu system. So they're available right away on first boot um, as soon as you reboot the system. And um, those four applications are going to be Element, um, Thunderbird, Vert Manager, and Krita. So all four of those are available to install from uh, the new module that's coming in 2404. You said that you're going to use Calamari's and that you've been using Calamari's. What is the default installer for Ubuntu and why do you choose something different? What are the advantages there? So the default installer for Ubuntu for a long time has been um, Ubiquity. Now, Ubiquity has been written completely in Python. And um, to save you the long explanation from a developer perspective, it wasn't the most pleasant and up-to-date code to work with. So um, 
when Lubuntu was moving from LXE to LXQ, so this is back in 1810, um, we had a conversation within the team. Um, if we were to use Ubiquity, um, the default front end, it would be GTK based. And that did not exactly fit with the theming scheme we had going on, um, not having support for GTK themes quite yet. Um, so we decided to take a different approach. Instead of simply using the Qt-based front end um, that Kubuntu uses that had a lot of icons and a lot of KDE-specific modules in it, which don't exactly apply to LXQ, we decided to go a different direction by choosing the next best thing in our opinion, which would be Calamares. So Calamares, like I said, is used by Manjaro and Debian um, at the very least, um, and it provides the exact same functionality is the, is the existing Ubuntu installer with a couple of small tweaks here and there. Um, on the back end, both are still rsync, um, both still um, work pretty efficiently. In fact, I would say that Calamaris is, is even more efficient than Ubiquity. Um, so this, this conversation happened a couple of years back. Um, now these days, um, Canonical has been working on the new um, Ubuntu desktop installer. This is based on Subiquity, which is the current um, Ubuntu server installer. So basically their goal is just to provide a front end for that written in Flutter. Now, we at Lubuntu have great technical respect for um, the new desktop installer. We think it's, it's a great product, but we also believe that some friendly competition in this space is definitely necessary to move things forward. So we're going to be implementing this, this package select module, or I'm sorry, the, the customized screen, uh, package select is the internal name for it. Um, we're going to be implementing this module and we would like to see something like that in the main Ubuntu installer. So this is a, a motivation on their end to sort of um, take features from us and vice versa. So there's a couple of, of interesting items around Active Directory um, and ZFS partitioning, that sort of thing, which exists but probably needs to be enabled um, that we would really like to see in Lubuntu's installer. So having more than one installer in this ecosystem really benefits us all, us all because it's its diversity of opinion is extremely important. Welcome was a bespoke greeter that kind of sought to solve kind of the same problem. You're new to the system, you log in for the first time, and it drops you into an easily digestible screen that you can look at and say, hey, here are some of the applications that you might want. Have you? Did you look at Welcome as a potential option for Lubuntu, and are you aware of any problems that they ran into trying to create some sort of a bespoke uh, you know, I guess, easy way to onboard new users to software. In terms of a, of a welcome menu, this is something we have explored in the past. Um, typically speaking with the flavors, we've usually implemented um, our own um, welcome to, um, you know, Ubuntu Mate or welcome to Ubuntu um, or something along those lines. Um, we usually would implement our own menus with our own logos, that sort of thing. That being said, um, I'm not aware if there's any efforts to make that cross flavor. If there is, I would be interested in it. Um, but my main concern, again, along the same lines as Calamari's, but not 100%, um, I really would like that to see that fit with our theming and at least be cute based. Um, so it, it, we do have a prototype for something along those lines. Um, it is a, a year or two old, um, but we would definitely be interested in reinvestigating that in the future. You talked a little bit about the new installer. Can you give me an idea of how that installer differs from the regular Ubuntu installer as it relates to downloading and installing updates? So in the, the new checkbox that we have in this um, customized menu, um, there is the usual checkboxes that you would see in the Ubuntu installer. So 
Um, you, of course, you can download and install third-party drivers for audio, um, you know, video, that sort of thing. Um, but you can also um, select download and install updates. Now, besides the regular Ubuntu installer, what the, what the regular Ubuntu installer will do is download those updates, but they won't install them. So you'll click the checkbox and you'll reboot and you'll be confused. Why aren't these updates installed? Well, it's because the installation process hasn't been done yet. Um, given that we already do some sort of installation and removal within the, within the Ubuntu installer, and in fact, so does the main Ubuntu installer, um, we definitely thought this was, this was an option here. How does package select or this customized package installer, how does it work on the back end? I understand that snaps don't work inside of a treated environment. And so there's a bit of technical skill that goes into slipstreaming this into the installed operating system so that you can make these snaps become available. So there's four pieces of software that I understand you're doing element, vert manager, Thunderbird and Krita. Element and Krita being the snaps, Vert Manager and Thunderbird being regular Debs. Can you talk a little bit about how this is implemented on the backside? Sure. So with the Debs, this is just a normal um, sudo apt install um, your Deb name. So this is this is pretty simple on that respect. In terms of snaps, like you said, that gets a little bit interesting. So usually on your end system, when you would want to install a snap, you would either choose your your favorite GUI for it, or you would open a terminal and type snap install. Um, hello or, or whatever my snap is um, instead of that approach so as you mentioned um, snaps do not work in troops um, so you actually have to precede that snap um, simply because that snap de um, daemon is not running because it can't run without system d present so um, even in in some weird special complicated environments it just doesn't work right so it's easier to follow the preceding process essentially um, what you do is you download the .snap file, and that comes with another file with it, which is just um, sort of a meta file, information file about um, the different confinement options, um, the, the size of the file, the channel, that sort of thing. Um, and then that information is also put into a, a, a c.yaml file, um, which is, is present within the file system. And on first boot of that file system, once it's... Uh, um, once it's completely installed and ready to go, um, SnapD will go through that YAML file and read um, those items actually installing those downloaded files. So it's a little bit of a multi-step process. There's still one step we have to do related to compression. Um, so we're having that old problem. You guys might remember um, when, when Ubuntu first switched to Firefox back in the day, it used to take like 15 or 20 seconds every time to boot. So we're seeing that problem again so far. Um, but after talking to some wonderful folks at the Ubuntu Summit, um, we're able to figure out that it's some compression issues. So um, in short, that's how that works. And the, the exciting thing about this is um, with all the snap preceding, we have that all reduced down to one single script. Um, so within the source code for the Ubuntu Calamari settings, um, you can find uh, you can find this this bash script and it's it would be useful for distributors if you're looking to um, to a precede snaps by default. How did you land on these specific applications? You chose Element, Vert Manager, Thunderbird, and Krita. Why those applications? First off, Element is is pretty special because, um, as you know, Noah. I mean, Matrix is is an incredible piece of software, and we're really trying to move um, a lot of our operations over to Matrix. So all of our channels right now are bridged to Matrix. 
um, and we would like to support Matrix as um, as an option. Now we do already have an IRC client installed by default, so if you're an IRC fan, don't worry, um, you still have your options. Um, but for people who are looking to jump to what, quite frankly, is going to be the next generation of communication, um, you can install Element. So that's that's the first item on the list. I would say that's the most important one. I would recommend everyone install Element. Um, the, the second one would be Vert Manager. So I'm good friends with the VirtualBox maintainer, and there's also Cubes out there, but really the, the most supported option within Ubuntu um, would be Vert Manager. And it's something we use, um, you know, my day job at AltaSpeed. Um, it's something that, you know, really works well. Um, so we decided to include that as an option um, simply for ease of use. Um, so users can install a system, maybe they would install a thin client sort of sort of machine um, on a beefy system and use that to manage their virtual machines if they're not quite comfortable managing that remotely via cockpit or something along those lines. So the next item on there would be Thunderbird. Now Thunderbird, um, a little bit of context on that is that there's no default email client shipped within Lubuntu. We, we leave that completely up to the user because quite frankly, we really like to let the user choose their own choose their own selection for that, I guess I'd say. In terms of Thunderbird, Thunderbird is a, is a great choice. Um, we already ship Firefox by default. Firefox is, you know, the, the leading open source web browser. So we consider Thunderbird to be a great pair to Firefox in the installation. Um, and then the last item is Krita. So Krita is, is just a, a fun addition to it. If someone is really into digital design, arts, graphics, that sort of thing, Krita is a is a great tool to use. There's people even on Windows that use that use Krita to uh, to design software. So um, that Snap is actually released directly by the KDE project. Um, the Debian developer that works on that is also a, um, a former Kubuntu developer, or might still be a Kubuntu developer, but she's been working very hard on that, and uh, we think that Krita is a great choice to ship as well. I want to shift gears on you a little bit, Simon. When I was at Ubuntu Summit, uh, you know, it was it was fascinating and, and really awe-inspiring to watch the connections that you've made over the years. And when I think back to where you got started with software development and contributing to open source projects, it was, you know, it was young Simon and it was, you asked questions and you saw opportunities of what you could fix and what you could jump in and what you can do. And I remember being impressed by that back then, but then having an opportunity to meet the release manager for Ubuntu Unity and settling into the reality that that's only a realist, that's, that's only on this planet today because of the work of another young man who is, who, who looks up to you and is kind of following in your footsteps. Can you talk to the next generation of software developers, everybody from, you know, the 39-year-old dude that's sitting inside of his mom's basement going like, I need my second career. I wonder if I could pull off the software development thing all the way down to the 11-year-old kid in India who says, I could be a release maintainer for, a, a, for an Ubuntu derivative distribution. The number one thing I would say is don't be afraid to ask questions and don't be afraid to learn new things. Um, the the industry of software um, in general, and I would say um, specifically in Linux distributions, is always evolving. For example, we completely switched our sound system from uh, um, from Pulse Audio to to Pipewire. That's you know major change, and you have to keep up with those sorts of things. So um, really, just be ready to learn at all times. 
be willing to learn and um, just voluntarily take on that challenge and just say, hey, I, I, I'd like to really um, take this to the next step. Um, and the next thing I would say is find a community of like-minded people. So whether that's starting a Linux users group, which I mean, hey, anyone really could start a Linux users group. Um, if you, you know, if you have a space that you could meet, um, make a mailing list post or, or something along those lines. Say, hey, is anyone from this area willing to meet and, and come and talk about Linux? Um, really find like-minded people who, who share those values with you, especially in the open source community. Um, there's also great virtual um, Linux users groups that you can join. Um, for example, I was just on Linux Saloon last week. So there's um, several great Linux users groups that you can join. Um, definitely join one of those. And if not, um, the next step up, I would say from that is to just join a, um, a distribution development community or even like a users community for that online. Um, so join the forums, really get involved, um, really get involved with support, um, understand how Linux works, understand how, um, you know, this specific distribution you're using works, what makes it different, what makes it special, um, what makes it unique. And then from there, you would move on to quality assurance, really testing things. And that's really how you get into development. Um, how did, what did that look like for you when you first got started? What did it look like for you when you were, you were a young developer and you had an interest, you had ambition, you started to poke around some code and, and, and could understand a little bit of what you were seeing? Where did you look to fix problems? So really, I look to um, a couple of my mentors, too. So having a mentor or at least someone that you can look up to or at least ask questions to is is, is really important. Um, and that's why I really emphasized, hey, find a local community or something along those lines. But um, in terms of really getting started and figuring things out, it's really all about trial, error and perseverance. Um, that's that's really the key to all of this. Um, if you if you really if you spend enough time working on something, if you're really determined to get to that end result, and you know what your end result is, it 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 really is it's achievable if you you know if you have a clear step forward. In terms of specific Linux distribution development, really the path, like I mentioned, usually goes um, in terms of new contributors these days. Um, support QA and then development or um, support to artwork or, or something along those lines. Usually support is the first thing that people do, helping other people. Um, and it's not mandatory. It's not something that everyone has to do, um, especially if you if you aren't a fan of support or, or you feel like you aren't good at it or, or something. Um, but in general, um, people usually work their way up. They pick up something small. Um, they say, I really want to make this one thing better. Um, and once you're done with that one thing, you look around and you say, well, I could probably make this other thing better as well. And it really, it snowballs into um, gaining responsibilities and uh, being a really valuable and critical member of a, of a team of like-minded people. Simon Quigley, he is the release manager for Lubuntu and a guest this hour on Ask Noah Show. Simon, you're always a friend of the program, always happy to have you, appreciate all the work that you do and have been doing literally your entire adult life. Uh, we'll get you back on the program soon. Thanks. It was great to be here. From the Linux Newswire newsroom, this is the Week in Review with JT. For the week of November 19th, 2023, here's the Linux and open source news. Oracle Linux 9.3 is out. Rocky Linux 9.3 is out and has reintroduced cloud and container images for PowerPC. Endeavor OS has dropped XFCE and adopts KDE Plasma for their new Galileo release. Wireshark 4.2 is out. 
Handbrake 1.7 has been released. The eBrook Reader Calibre has launched version 7.0. DistroBox 1.6 is out. And the Mozilla team has released Firefox 120. Olamex has showed off an open hardware Linux-based autonomous drone swarm. Colabora has announced that NVK, the open source Vulkan driver for NVIDIA hardware in Mesa, is now an officially conformant implementation of the Vulkan 1.0 API on NVIDIA Turing hardware. TikTok has announced that they will open source their cloud neutralizing edge accelerator. And the European telecom body, ESTI, has stated that they will open source their encryption protocol, Tetra, used in radio systems. In security news, the U.S. has shut down the network behind the IP Storm malware, which had developed the capability to infect Windows, Mac, Linux, and Android devices. In open source AI news, Google has introduced a new project named OpenSecura, an open source framework to accelerate the development of secure, scalable, transparent, and efficient AI systems. And lastly, a French billionaire and Iliad CEO Xavier Neal has announced a new research lab named Qtai with a $330 million budget that will make everything open source. Thank you, JT. Your feedback is appreciated at live at asknoahshow.com. You got a question about how you're using your Linux infrastructure, how to use it at home, how to use it at work, what's a problem that you're having? That's the premise of our show. And so we need your participation. Write in live at asknoahshow.com. We'll get your questions and your efforts in Linux answered. Our first email comes in from Sebastian. Sebastian writes in and says, Hi, found you via the mentions in the Jupiter Broadcasting Shows, and I've been listening and learning for a few weeks. The other day, our internet went down. So our NextCloud server was not reachable via its provider address. I cannot make my partner use an internal IP address, and I missed a great opportunity to show that self-hosting is not only the right thing to do, but is useful. I think just a day later, you touched on this topic in the show on the 15th of November, but I have a lot of questions. What are the ways to set up net reflection? Which is the best? Can this be done using a consumer grade router? In my case, it's a Fritz dot box. Could AdGuard home achieve this? The topic feels hard to research and I'm confused about what the difference in net reflection and translation and loopbacks and hairpins and if DNS ray binding attacks are a problem. Thanks for the show. I'll keep listening. Sebastian. Well, appreciate having the opportunity to earn your ears, Sebastian. So we'll kind of step through this as, as best we can. So the short answer to your question about, you know, you're getting lost with net reflection and, and hairpin and, and all the rest of this, really a lot of this is referring to the same thing. So the general idea here is when you reach out to your public IP address, the router or the gateway knows enough to say, ah, that's coming right back to me. I'll just keep that traffic and treat it as if it was coming in from the outside. Now, depending on your router, that may be called hairpin. It may be called hairpinning. It may be called loopback. It may be called NAT reflection, but they all basically mean the same thing. So there's a number of different ways to address this. We'll start by circling back to what Steve was talking about when he was talking about uh, uh, NAT reflection in that episode, and we'll kind of go from there. So Steve, how do you have NAT reflection set up at your house? So I I have a PFSense router, and on, in the PFSense settings, under the advanced settings, you can actually go in there and turn on uh, NAT reflection is what it's called inside of PFSense. And Part of the reason for this is the old sysadmin in me says, well, if the router is supposed to be the authoritative for my network, then it should be the one to decide, should this go out to the net, to the internet or should it come back to me somehow? 
um, Noah was mentioning to me that the documentation in PFSense actually says that this is a bit of a workaround in and of itself, but that is currently the way that I have it set up. So you and I, Steve, I think we kind of agree on this, is that the so the issue with doing it any other way than the way that you've just described is that it leaves opportunity for failure depending on the circumstance. In the way that you've described, you're literally telling the thing that is doing the DNS resolution, the thing that is going to hand network traffic off to its most authoritative next server, the thing that is going to route traffic, that device is the thing that you're asking to make the change. So you're making the change at the lowest possible level and you're not really conflicting with anything upstream. So I think Steve and I, and speak for yourself, Steve, if I'm, if I'm overstepping here, but I think we would say that's the most straightforward, least workaround, least hacky way to solve the problem. Yeah, I agree. If that doesn't work for you, or if that isn't an option. So for example, let's say your consumer grade route, let's say you log into your Fritz dot, your Fritz, what did you call this thing? Fritz box. And you, you can't get into it. Fritz dot box. I'm not familiar with that particular model, but let's just say you log into there and there's nothing to be said about hairpin or net reflection. The first thing I would do is just try it. So Xfinity, for example, they have hairpin on by default. So if you just enter your public IP address, it's going to figure out, oh, I have that IP address. I'll just keep it. So that's option one. Option two, you can typically specify a local DNS server. And it sounds like you might be using that if you're up updating your dynamic DNS provider, unless again, that's built into your router, it may be. But if you have the a separate box that's running DNS and an ability to override host configs in DNS, you can set something like this up inside of your local DNS. Hey, when I'm inside the network, the IP address resolves to my local IP. And so when you log on to your Wi-Fi and you go to, you know, your house dot you know, dndnsprovider.com, it's not actually going to resolve that on a public DNS server. Your router, being the first DNS server in the list, will answer it first and say, ah, host override, it's this local IP, and then it will take you there. And when you go outside the home, it's going to use whatever DNS provider you're provided there, it'll reach out and it'll say, okay, here, this is the real public IP, and then you'll be able to get back in. Now, some caveats with doing it that way. First is, understand that you potentially run into caching issues, right? So you'll typically see this if you have hotspot users. They jump from their hotspot onto the Wi-Fi, they go back and forth. Their computer has cached the DNS record to be this public IP address, but now they're sitting on the inside and they can't reach that LAN IP address. That can potentially be problematic. So there's that. The other issue is um, that you're, you're starting to have two sources of truth. So you've got one source of truth that is the home DNS, and then you've got another source of truth that is the external DNS. And so it, they're not they're not congruent and they're not the same. But per the uh, PFSense documentation, that is one of the ways that they recommend that you take a look at this and suggest. And so we'll include that recommendation in the show notes and you can check that out. See if that works for you. The third way that you could do this um, is you could set put the server onto a different subnet. And so this gets a little more complicated but what you're doing effectively is you're forcing the router to make a routing decision to move the packets. It always is having to traverse the firewall. And so in that case, when you're going to try to get to whatever the IP address is or whatever the, excuse me, whatever the host name is, you can program that in and say, okay, that's over on this 
this VLAN and here's how you get the traffic. And all of those requests have to go through the router. And that should prevent any sort of, well, it got cached and it didn't, because if you're outside, it's going to reach out and get the, the public IP address and be able to take you straight in. And if you're sitting across VLANs and you're having to route that traffic over, that's another way that you could simply bypass that project or that, uh, that problem. If I, if any of those don't work for you, Right back in, and Steve and I will help. We'll figure out a, a little bit more on your situation. But that's the that's a what would you call it, Steve? What uh, boot camp to uh, pair pin netting? Yeah, I'd say that that's the the very basic introduction. Our second email comes in from William. William has a follow up from the Hike Vision. He guys, hi guys, I'm just following up on the situation I was having with my Hike Vision IP camera. First off, I'd like to thank Glenn for a suggestion in last week's show. However, I tried the IE tab extension for Chrome, and the reason it didn't work for me is because it requires an internet connection to work. I guess it sends the URL request to some remote server. My camera system is completely offline. Then another listener suggested IE mode in Edge. That didn't work either because Edge isn't available for Linux. I have a hundred percent Linux environment at my house. This was my this was the solution for my issue. First, I took Steve's advice and I put the camera on eBay. It sold within 48 hours. Then I took your advice and searched eBay for a used, older access camera. By the way, thank you for the eBay listings you put in the show notes. Through those listings, I found several more models within my budget. I just happened to find a P3364 for $35, which I immediately purchased. And guess what? It worked just fine. It worked just like you said. I couldn't be happier with the results, William. So, hey, that's good. And this, again, this is a great way to end the episode. You can be thankful for the companies that put products out there that last the test of time, that provide solid updates down the road, and that five, 10 years later, they're still in use. Guess what? Why? Because they don't require any sort of cloud subscription. You don't have to have any sort of special license or thing to use them. You just buy a 10-year-old camera or five-year-old camera, whatever it is, at a price that fits your budget, and then you're back in business. Have a good week. We'll see you next Tuesday.